Good morning, everybody. My name is Pete Snow. I'm assistant minister here. We, uh, we have a love story on our hands this morning. I'll try and explain. It's, it's magnificent in what it shows us about God in particular. Let's pray. Let's pray as we come to it. Almighty God, teach us, we pray, from your word this morning to, to discern your hand in all your works. And uh, we are mindful of those prayers we prayed earlier on, that the ones you favor are those who are humble and contrite in spirit. And we pray that you would make each of us those people, just for these few precious moments we have together, gathered around your word. We pray you'd teach us and show us what it means for our life. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Let me get, begin with a confession. I've been watching The Crown, season two, and I finished it. I finished season two this week. And uh, without issuing any spoilers, which might annoy any of you, um, there's quite a lot of angst in The Crown season two, you know, um, relational tension that uh, you're wondering if will get resolved. And then, um, without giving anything away, some of it gets resolved at the end of the season, and you're left thinking, oh, wow, that's such a, that's, that's such a better ending than I expected. It was all going pretty badly at one point. And to some extent, as you read through the long middle chapters of Genesis, you think there's quite a lot of tension in these chapters, and we've, we've had some real downers. You know, what have we had? If you've been with us, uh, we started just before Christmas, didn't we? The story of Abraham in chapter 12. He sleeps with a slave girl, and you think, oh, no, don't do that. Or um, what happens? There's, there's a relational angst with his nephew and all sorts. There's the destruction of Sodom. Oh, my goodness. And then, of course, last week we had the potential sacrifice of his only son. Oh, wow, wow. And then you get to this week, chapter 24, the last one, really, where Abraham features. And, yeah, it is a really happy story for once. It's a really good story where lots of the loose ends get tied up. And if we read on to chapter 25, if we had time, we'd see Abraham tucking his feet up into bed and dying, an old man, realizing God's blessing with happiness. This, as Matt said earlier, this is the place where Abraham's narrative gets wound up and then you hand over, as the Genesis narrator does, to Isaac in chapter 25. So that's what we're dealing with here. But chapter 24, before he gets there, he's determined to give us the longest single episode in Genesis. There's a lot of great stories in Genesis, but chapter 24 is so long that it sort of stands out for all the detail. It's like he wants to linger over the narrative and the story and the love scene. God isn't given a speaking role once. It's striking, isn't it? The longest single episode in Genesis, and God doesn't speak. However, he's mentioned 13 times. Ten of those times, all the details are about what God is doing, how God has directed the journey. Let me just prove it to you so you don't just take my word for it. I think we have it here on the screen. Oh, in a moment, we're going to see these 10 instances. Here we go. So, in, in brief, the helicopter view. Uh, make me successful today, the, the servant prays. Whether or not the Lord has made my journey successful, he says later on. The Lord has led me on the journey. Verse 40, the Lord will make your journey a success. 42, Lord, please grant success to the journey. Let her be the one the Lord has chosen. The Lord had led me on the right road. This is from the Lord, say um, daddy and brother in verse 50. As the Lord has directed. And then verse 56, now that the Lord has granted success to my journey. You see the point? God may not speak, but the details of his working and his directing and his granting success are everywhere throughout the story, as I hope to show you just in the next couple of moments. 
there has been this ongoing tension in, in Abraham's story, hasn't there? I understand that God's word tells me something. But it's as if God's hand, his, his leading and his directing, it's as if he's just holding it back. His word says one thing, but his hand doesn't seem to respond. And here you have a very happy tying up of God's word and his hand. The two go together very beautifully in this story, as we always knew they would. Let me try and put it this way. Um, you know Rubik's Cubes? That great 80s toy. I know this isn't an actual Rubik's Cube, but it's, they're surprisingly hard to source, actually. Uh, they're kind of retro. Uh, the Rubik's Cube, the colored version of this, where you twist all the dials and eventually you're supposed to make all the sides match up. They've always baffled me. How on earth can a human being be capable of solving a Rubik's Cube? Is the thought that has several times occurred to me in my life. And one day when I was a youth leader a few years ago, um, there was a boy, a teenage boy, he, he boasted to us one day, ah, I used to be able to solve a Rubik's Cube in six seconds, he foolishly said. And of course, the response of all of us was, go on then, go and do it. So someone finds a, a Rubik's Cube, a real one, and they hand it to him. And of course, we wait with bated breath with the stopwatch going, can you do this thing in six seconds? And he's obviously feeling the pressure a little bit, but um, cracks his knuckles, picks up the Rubik's Cube, and go, someone says. And, and we're all thinking, is he? Can he? Could he possibly? Ta-da. Six seconds on the button. This kid's still got it. He's obviously quite pleased with himself. Of course, it's, it's quite impressive when someone can say something. You know, their, their word stakes a, a claim, a promise. I can do this in six seconds. And then their hand is able to actually provide the proof of it. The hand is able to deliver. How much more impressive is God? can make amazing promises. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. All nations on earth are going to be blessed through you. And then, of course, you see at the end of the story, not just in Genesis, but in the Bible, oh, and his hand really does deliver it. God's hand will always align with God's word. Of course, of course it has to be that way. He is faithful. But how wonderful to actually read it on the pages of Scripture. God's hand will always align with God's word. Or to put it another, day, another way, his providence will always align with his promise. God's providence, that is his hand, his, his leading, his ordering of every detail in everyday life for each one of us will always align with his promise. Of course. It's as easy for him as rotating a few dials on a Rubik's Cube. Maybe in, in the story, you know, chapter 22 finally cemented this for Abraham. He goes through this bewildering ordeal with his son on the mountaintop, being told to sacrifice him. But what you get at the end is this statement that um, God will provide, because God provides the lamb. He is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. And it you know, only struck me this week, uh, providence, provide, they're like nearly the same word. Maybe, maybe that was completely obvious to everybody else, but you know, the, the Lord provides. It is his providence in everyday life where I see his hand. Of course, for us, it is always harder when you are waiting for God to provide. You're living in the gap, waiting for the hand to align with the mouth, and it doesn't seem to have happened yet. As a Christian, I've been promised a world without suffering. So why am I suffering now? As a Christian, I've been promised a wonderful future. So why am I so worried about it in the short term? As a Christian, I've been promised fullness of joy and life to the full, so why do I feel abysmal right now? 
course, it does help. Sometimes I think I've been promised something, and it does help to go back to the Bible and realize, actually, I haven't been promised that specific thing. I have been promised amazing things in the future, but maybe I've latched onto the wrong thing here, the, the, the millions of pounds I think I'm entitled to, the relationship, the friendship, the partnership, whatever it might be, the fame, the glory, the, the bodily health. I haven't necessarily been promised those in the short term, wonderful things in the long term. It's good for me to check. But what this story does in Genesis is give you a wonderful view of the God whose hand will always align with his word, the God who provides. Let me just take you through some of the wonderful details. There's three main characters, so we'll just look at each in turn. There's Abraham, there is the servant, and then there's Rebecca. So first of all, we have Abraham who trusted God's hand on his deathbed, the servant who trusted God's hand for marriage, and Rebecca who trusted God's hand and went. All right, follow with me. First one, Abraham trusted God's hand on his deathbed. You get Abraham's last words here. He he does die in chapter 25, but he doesn't say anything else. And it's quite a final speech, okay? Verse 1, Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. So you remember that quad promise in Genesis 12? That was one of them. You're going to be blessed, Abraham. Sure enough, he has been. Verse 2, he said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all he had. Okay, this is his final words. Put your hand under my thigh. I want, to, I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Let's just pause there. This, this is the middle of Abraham's last speech. We might think, um, what's wrong with the Canaanite girls? It would be particularly easy, Abraham, to send your servant down into Mamre or Hebron, you know, the local village, and um, pick, I don't know, whoever you want, the prettiest girl, the wealthiest girl, the most gifted girl, and say, you'll, you'll do very nicely for my eligible son, Isaac. Uh, let's have a wedding. But for some reason, he says, don't do that. Don't you dare go to the local town, servant. I'm going to send you far away to get one from the clan. There are two problems as we read through Genesis with getting a Canaanite girl for your son, Isaac. Okay? Um, it, uh, she'd be from the wrong family, and she'd be worshipping the wrong God. She'd be from the wrong family because ever since Noah, chapter 9, we've known it's going to be the Shemites who are going to be blessed, not the Canaanites. So for, for Abraham to suddenly on his deathbed say, we're going to get a Canaanite girl, it doesn't matter. No, but you've known all along that they're going to be cursed rather than blessed. So it's the wrong family. And second of all, significantly, they worship the wrong God. And the Canaanites are already attracted this enormous reputation for idolatry. So for Abraham to give his precious firstborn son away to a girl who's going to introduce loads of different religious practice into the family, well, that's not going to be in line with everything God's taught him throughout his whole life. That's not going to be serving the one covenant that God's given him. So wrong family, wrong God. Deuteronomy 7, 3 would spell this out later in the Old Testament. Of course, just, just to be clear, since we're talking about um, marriage and relationships in the Bible, the New Testament would reaffirm this as well. 1 Corinthians 7.39 would say to a Christian in the, in the New Covenant, you're free to marry whoever you want, but they must belong to the Lord. Don't go and marry someone who worships the wrong God. And then the servant, just back to our speech, the servant puts his finger on a crucial problem. Verse 5. 
The servant asked him, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? See, what if, um, Abraham, uh, I hate to bother you on your deathbed, but what if she doesn't want to come? It's, it's quite a tall order to come with me and marry a stranger, just on my word. What if, what if God's hand doesn't align with God's word, Abraham? What are we going to do then? And then you see what Abraham's learned over the years. Look at verse 6. Make sure that you do not take my son back there. Abraham said. So, in other words, don't take him out of the promised land. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. Make sure you obey. See, Abraham's finally enrolled in this school of faith that says, well, God said something, so I believe it, and that settles it. Make sure you obey. You get this fascinating extra sentence in verse 8. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh and swore an oath. Isn't that interesting? Abraham, Abraham, man of faith, you've enrolled in the school of faith. Make sure you obey. Of course, if it doesn't happen the way I think, if God's hand doesn't lead in exactly the way that I think I would like in this situation, then you're released from your employment. You can go on your way. Don't worry about it. But as for me, I'm going to still trust his word. Fantastic. After all the angst we've been through with Abraham, look, to be honest, servant, it may not happen this way, but I'm still going to trust God. God's hand will always align with God's word. This is very moving, I think, because it's Abraham on his deathbed and he is uttering these words as a frail old bloke. Sometimes finishing a job is really hard, isn't it? For me, this weekend, uh, I tried to paint a room in our house. And um, I quite enjoyed it, actually. You know, there's something quite um, therapeutic about just rollering up and down, up and down. But the end of the job, my goodness, that's annoying, isn't it? You know, when, the, when darkness has fallen, and I've, ba- I've basically painted the room, and it looks all right. I've managed not to get paint on the carpet, but then I've got to wash everything. I've got to wash the brushes and the rollers. And, oh, I feel I'm entitled to some Saturday night TV, or I want to I go out and have some food. Or, but, oh, my goodness, finishing the job. How about finishing a life? How about you get to the end of your life? You've basically done a decent job. You've had a go. I mean, there have been some down moments, but you've trusted the Lord. And then it'd be really easy just to let it go with the last couple of decisions. I'll go down to the town. I've got the promised son. Go and get her a girl, and there'll be some offspring. But very moving to read of Abraham saying, no, I will finish the job, actually. I will trust the word. It's very moving to see this in a, in a faithful, older Christian, I think. There, there are hundreds and thousands of examples of this. Let me just pick one. There's a, a man, um, a, a Christian preacher and teacher in America called, America called R.C. Sproul, who died just before Christmas. And uh, I think we've got a picture of him here. Um, he, uh, by all accounts, a faithful man who'd helped many, many people over the years. He uh, said when he was asked, what's the main point of the Christian life? R.C. Sproul, he said, to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, 
and to the glory of God. You see that? So my entire life, and thanks be to God, I think he demonstrated this. I listened to a croaky old lecture of his. You know, at age 78, I think he died. Uh, I listened to one of his last lectures, and he was there croaking out, you know, this old, this old man um, being asked to lecture on what he'd learned in his ministry. He said, I've learned that there are many fads that have come and gone over the decades, but there's one gospel. Isn't that great? And he gives his hour-long lecture all about that and the different fads he's seen come and go and how there's one gospel. It's very moving to hear a man croak those words out with his last lecture. And here we have Abraham doing a similar thing on his deathbed right to the end. He trusted God's hand. Secondly, let's go on and consider the servant. A servant trusted God's hand in marriage. The servant actually becomes the, the main character in the story, really. He, he gets the most airtime, the most verses, and uh, he has the biggest part to play. And he's very faithful, even when he's sent on Mission Impossible. I mean, you think about this guy. What, what about this as a task? In the ancient world, you are a faithful steward in your household, but you're sent for hundreds of miles with a couple of camels and a, and a bag of gold, and you're to find basically a handful of eligible girls who belong to the right family. I mean, there weren't many. It was like the, the direct cousins of Abraham. Go and find those girls in whatever town they might be in, in ancient Mesopotamia. Um, here's a bit of gold to help and bring one of them back to marry a total stranger. Yeah, okay. I'll have a go. You can understand why he asked the question in verse 5, can't you? And here's what he does. Verse 10. The servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master, he sent out for Aram Naharaim and made his way to the town of Nahor. So maybe he just picks the first likely town he can find. He made the camels near down, near the well, outside the town. It was towards evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. And then he prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, that's interesting, isn't it? He's no ordinary servant. Maybe a bit of Abraham's faith is just rubbed off on him here because he gets there, gets to the well, and he prays a fantastic prayer. He goes on to construct this um, test, a slightly arbitrary test perhaps. It's all to do with whether she's going to offer water to the camels and give them all a drink by the well. It's interesting, verse 13. See, I'm standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink and I'll water your camels too, well, let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to, the, to my master. So he, there's this test. I don't think it's supposed to be guidance advice. I don't think we're supposed to see this and think, ah, oh, well, I, I too will offer, you know, I'll, I'll look a bit parched on, on the Transport for London network, and if someone offers me a drink, and maybe it's my pet dog, then they're the one. Some people, you, I mean, you can go crazy with that sort of thing, trying to detect everything. Maybe... I've been offered a job with a telecoms firm, and I'm trying to decide whether to take it. And then I find myself on the tube on the way home as I'm trying to decide whether I want this job, and everyone's on their telephones. They've, all around me, everyone's got a phone out. Maybe this is God's hand. Or maybe everyone just has mobile phones these days. I don't, so, you, so you can go crazy with all sorts of these things if you, if you try and construct these tests. But it's interesting to note with the servant, he knows he's after the right family, and he knows he's after the right God. 
you see? So th these are the, the, the tests he was looking for. The right family, I know, I know the girls I'm looking for, so that's going to be one of the questions I ask. And I know I want her to worship the right God, because that's what matters to my master, Abraham. Right family, right God. Interesting, that, that just leads to a third criteria. I want the right character. I want this girl to have some Abraham hospitality running in her veins, you see? So she's fantastic, Rebecca, when she comes out with the water jar. Look, verse 18, drink, my Lord, she said, and she quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. And then, verse 19, after she'd given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they've had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. And without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. She's got this fantastic hospitality. She hasn't even seen the gold yet. You know? After this, he gets the, the jewelry and the bling out, and he says, uh, do you want some of this? And she says, oh, that's a bonus. But she's already got this fantastic character, you see. You see that throughout the Bible. Right family, right God, right character. This is a happy story, isn't it? I mean, who doesn't enjoy watching God's hand work in this way? When, you, when, a, when a good love story is working out on the page in front of us. It's amazing to watch God's hand introduce people at the right time. We, sh we should give thanks for that. I mean, I mean it. We really should give thanks for this. When, when you see God's hand working in providence in any way, we should stop as individuals or, or together when we can and just give thanks. Some of you know we've been praying about a church graft in North London, and last weekend we got, got together some of the interested people and we stopped and we gave thanks. And we were just marveling at how God has opened so many doors in this particular instance in Haringey. In fact, he hasn't just opened doors, I think he's unlocked and unbolted them. They were doors that we could never have dreamed of going through. We were sitting in this parish church that we could never have dreamed of being invited into, and here we were talking about how we could partner with them. It was fantastic and quite right to stop, and I hope you'll all just join us. We, we praise God when he, you see his hand working in that sort of way. Of course, there are many more painful examples when you want God's hand to move in that sort of way, and it doesn't seem to. And there are all sorts of examples where we would love God's hand just to do something. One friend of mine, uh, in the midst of a very deep depression, Christian friend, something in his career hadn't worked out the way he wanted it. He, he said, this feels like a cosmic disappointment. Of course, we do have God's absolute promise in his word that when he has promised something, it will come true. You know, his hand will align with his word. It's just that he doesn't often give you a timetable to go with that movement. If Abraham's taught us anything as a church, it might be that there is a gap between promise and reality. The word often does come before the hand, but the hand always comes. Why is that? Why, why do you not get a timetable? Why is it painful? No doubt because we live in a broken world that needs recreating, and we feel the frustration of that every day. Maybe it's partly also because as we live in that broken world, we're like the Israelites in the wilderness or you know, Abraham in the gap. We're, I am taught to, to wait on the Lord. I'll, I'll wait for his hand. 
I wait for the, for the manna in the wilderness every day as I wait for your provision, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Every day, remembering, realizing afresh, I cannot unbolt this door alone. I cannot walk through this door, whatever it might be, whatever it is that's blocking my way, because I need God the provider to do it for me. No doubt that's a lesson I need to learn. And the servant, of course, was learning it as he trusted God's hand in marriage. So there's the Abraham, the Abraham, uh, the servant. And then finally, we must just look at Rebecca. She is, of course, the female star of the show. Rebecca, thirdly, trusted God's hand and went. Her brother Laban and her dad Bethuel, they kind of lead the negotiations, but she is the star. So just look at verse 50 as we jump towards the end of the story. Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Interesting, they note God's providence. Here's Rebecca, take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. When they got up the next morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. But her brother and her mother replied, let the young one remain with us ten days or so, and then you may go. But he said to them, don't detain me now that the Lord has granted success to my journey. Send me on my way so I may go to my master. And then they said, well, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? I will go, she said. I will go. One word in Hebrew, elek, four letters. I will go. How fantastically like Abraham is that? Remember chapter 12? Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I'll show you. So Abraham went. Rebecca, do you want to leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go with this stranger just based on the promise of God? Elek. Yes, I will. I will go. She's got a dose of Abraham hospitality and a dose of Abraham faith in her veins. And maybe, maybe she recognizes, I'm not sure if we have enough detail, but she obviously recognizes God's hand in it and maybe God's line in it. You know, because... God has put his finger on the Abraham line and says, this family, this family tree is going to be the golden thread that runs through humanity and reaches out to bless the world. Maybe she has a hint of that. She's marrying into that. She's going to be a part of that family. The rest of the Old Testament is pretty simple. I know it seems like a complicated book, especially if you haven't read it much before. But the rest of the Old Testament, tracing that family tree, looking for the one who's going to bless the whole entire world who's in that family. A few years ago, um, you know, remember the 400-year anniversary of the King James Bible? It was kind of a big thing. When was it? 2011. Uh, I heard about an anniversary show they were doing at the Shakespeare's Globe Theatre where they were just going to read out the whole King James Bible in the course of a week. I thought, well, that sounds really cool. And it was free. So I went along. And um, Sarah and I, we sat there, we listened to Ezra and one and two chronicles in an evening. Um, not many people came, actually, but that might be because it was one and two chronicles, I don't know, uh, in the King James Version. But it was fascinating because behind us, on the, on the row behind us, there was a woman with all sorts of maps and charts, and you know, she had a full entire study Bible and loads of printouts and everything. She came prepared. And when we talked to her in the, in the interval, she said, 
I've been here all week. I'm coming to every book of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you know, I've got all my material here. It's fascinating. And she said, it's weird. I mean, one and two chronicles, it's obviously all about the kings of Israel. And you just get one after another after another. And some of them are really bad and some of them are okay. But it's almost like you're waiting for the best one. Sarah and I are nudging each other, being like, you tell her, you tell her. <laughs> of course, that's what the Old Testament is. You are waiting for the best one. You're waiting for Jesus Christ, the one in the golden family tree who's going to come and bless the whole entire world. And Rebecca comes along, is given the opportunity to marry into this family, given this incredible offer, come and join this, be part of this blessing. Come and share the family treasure and worship the one true God with us in the covenant. And she says, Elek. Yes, please. You could call this story a bride for Isaac. But you could call this story a bride for Christ, couldn't you? A whole story, finding a bride for Jesus Christ, inviting people into the family and having them say, yes, please. So as we get to the end of the whole Abraham story, and we have to leave him here on his deathbed, setting up the wedding for his son. What have we learned about this God? Seems appropriate, doesn't it? We end by looking up at God and thinking, what have we learned about his character? Well, two things. Firstly, he's got generous words. He's a God of incredibly generous words. We've seen that ever since the start of the story in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, he speaks generously even to rotted, rotten, twisted humanity. You know, humanity that's going about murdering and envying and turning away from him in Genesis on planet Earth. And he says, do you know what? I'm going to bless you. So he's a God of generous words. And the second thing, he's a God with a sovereign hand. You have his words, but also his hand. He is able to order events perfectly. He doesn't keep to the short-term timetable that we might like to hold him to. But for the Christian, for Abraham, there is no such thing as good luck or bad luck. You know, there's no such thing as fluking it in life because God's hand holds every atom of the universe firm in it. I would much rather say with Abraham and the servant, I am incredibly blessed and that I am incredibly lucky. I would rather say I am firm in God's hand and in his promises than anywhere else. And of course, you have a vision there of life in the gap. Life with Jehovah Jireh. Everything's ordered by his hand. And his hand will align with his word. Let's pray. Almighty God, we marvel at your word and your hand today. Your promises are amazing and we think it's incredible that you would stoop to, to bless humanity and all the mess that we're in and yet we also marvel at your hand and the way you're, you're able to order detail like in this story we've read this morning father i pray for each one of us that where we need to know the truth of this and we need to know that your hand is sovereign and powerful in our lives that you order every detail that you are true and faithful to your promises and your plans we we pray there'd be comfort here in your word today and proof of it in our lives as we go out from here and we pray in the power of the Spirit.
and through the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and for your glory. Amen.